be walking by your spirit, totally controlled by him, dependent on you and ignoring our circumstances. I have to admit, I didn't do well this week. Struggle with some things up and down, but I thank you for your word. I thank you for some hours of time in it, and it changes my attitude, and it needs to change us today. So as we open up this second part of um, section here in Habakkuk, may it speak to our hearts through your spirit. May we become more like your son as we respond and more trusting of you as Habakkuk had to do through this little book as well. We just thank you for the reminder and for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the little book of Habakkuk. You remember where that's found? Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament, end or beginning? Endish, kind of. When you go to the Old Testament, it's H-Z-H-Z-M. What's M stand for? Malachi. You know that's the last book. And so you have Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. And that's where you can find it, an easy way to remember where this is found. Or if you know where Nahum is, hang a right. Now, a little bit of response. We are alive, sort of. As we look into this section here, remember what Habakkuk was doing last week? He was complaining. He was not happy. You may look, be looking at the world the same way today, but it wasn't just his world. It was the nation of Judah. There was injustice. It was horrible. If you want to find out what it was like, go back and read the book of Jeremiah. Um, you realize Lamentations it, it describes the destruction of Jerusalem when um, God finally fulfilled or carried out what he promised he was going to do. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't listen. How are we doing today? You really believe Jesus Christ is coming back? Does it affect you when you're thinking of sinning? Because it wasn't affecting Judah. They thought, oh, he's made promises before, and it's been years, if not decades, for some of them. It's not coming in my lifetime. I don't need to worry about it. That's how they were treating this whole situation. And so Habakkuk is complaining to God. He says, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you fix Judah? Deal with her sin. She needs help. So God answers him. And that's what chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, is God's answer. My title, Habakkuk, I am helping got a problem though. Yahweh lets him know that he's getting his spanking stick ready, but when he finds out who the spanking stick is, he's not happy. Because it's Judah's dreaded enemy that is going to be her method of discipline. Now who would God use today if he wanted to get the church's attention? Who would you fear the most? And I heard one name, one country come up that are ruthless, that are just like the Chaldeans that we're going to describe here. They don't care. They have no mercy. No pity on babies. They don't care how old you are. They don't care what your needs are. You may be eating your last little morsel and they come and take it out of you and stab you through and go on and sleep like a baby that night. That's what they were planning. This is what Habakkuk is looking at. And so God explains to him with this answered prayer, he says in verse 5, five commands. Look among the nations, Habakkuk. Observe, be astonished, wonder. Four different commands there. Four incredible orders that he's giving to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk has to look at this and go, what are you talking about? He's, the idea of look here is perceive. It's just a general command. But he's kind of saying, like we would say, check it out, Habakkuk. Inspect it. 
gaze among the nations. Who would you want as the last spanking stick out there? That's who it's going to be. Don't think it's going to be some mild little thing that I'm going to do. It's going to be major. Judah has had decades of sin. Again, if you're reading Jeremiah, you'll see a lot of that. He gives him a second command, but he changes it a little bit as he um, puts it in a hiphil. I know these don't mean a lot to you, but literally the idea of observe his here is cause yourself to pay attention. It's a causal form. You work at getting your own attention. Put everything else aside. Turn off your cell phones. Stay away from the TV. Uh, get away from your favorite hobby or whatever it is you're pursuing right now. You're going away to a... a a deserted island where there's no COVID-19 particularly? Put that out of your mind. Stop for a second, Habakkuk, and observe. Consider, regard, pay attention, but cause yourself to lock on to this information. Be watching. And then he changes it again with the third one, and he says, be astonished. It is in a hithpiel, which I know again means nothing to you, unless somebody's out there looking it up like Pat Stone or whoever else it may be. But this one is the is more of a reciprocal idea. He's literally saying to them, shock yourselves, amaze yourselves. And then he uses the same word for the fourth one. But he puts it back into a standard verb form. Wonder, look in astonishment, be bewildered, be astounded, be dumbfounded is the idea of three and four. But do it yourself, be shocked. Why is he having to say that to Habakkuk? Basically, what you could imagine from this is that Habakkuk's looking at it and he says, it's bad, but, but God, it's not that bad. It, it, it's not that bad. And you're always saying it is. I hate sin. I hate divorce. I despise homosexuality. And on and on, you name whatever sins you want to pick up. And God is clear as where he stands on that. And the wages of sin is... This is what he's trying to bring up. He's trying to get Habakkuk, his prophet, to get on the right level of the right understanding, let alone the nation. And so as he's zeroing in on them, these four incredible orders, with the last two kind of repeated for emphasis, he's trying to bring out here. And he gives them the reason why. The commands are clear, but what's the cause? What's the reason? He says, because I am doing something in your days. Not in a month or five years, but in your day. Well, it may be in a month, but not in outside of your time. In your days, you would not believe if you were told, Habakkuk, what? What if God were to speak to you? Let's say he makes you a prophet or a prophetess for five minutes, and he gives you a glimpse of the United States in the next 10 to 20 years. What would that look like? Pretty? Why isn't America already destroyed for all of her sin? Because God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3.9, desiring for all to come to repentance. That's who God is. And we're even sitting here, it's, America's not religious. America has some, some morals left, some places. But in a lot of it, you're watching it just disintegrate. And as soon as people realize they have the freedom to do whatever they want to do, they're doing it. Not holding back. If you watch some of the um, responses, and again, I hate keep picking on COVID-19, but it's the current one. When, when people think it's the last item in the store, and it's food, or it's toilet paper, 
and they don't think they're going to get some? Have you seen that yet? It's only been about 15 months of it. That's why the store shelves are cleared out, because everybody's panicking. Who are they depending on for their lives? Not God. Who was Judah depending upon for her life? Not God. And so God says he's going to have to deal with this. I'm doing something. I'm working a work, is literally what he's saying there. Discipline is on its way, Habakkuk. I'm coming. My answer's coming. No, no, no. Habakkuk responds, as we'll look at next week. He said, it's in your days, not your children or your grandchildren. You are going to see this. No, no, no. You get the idea how Habakkuk's responding to this whole thing. He said, you would not believe it. You would not allow it into your minds and trust that it's true. It's so unexpected. It, it can't be real. That's how bad this is. And so we don't even comprehend it until God says, I'm done with America. But I'm not done with America per se. I'm done with the professed church being the way it is. And I'm going to bring in a discipline or a spanking stick, and I'm going to get the church's attention. Because my goal is to get the bride of Christ ready for his return. And when God brings into destruction, or uses America itself, and everybody turns on the true Christians, not the religious people, but the real believers who have convictions, who love God, who are following his word, then you're going to be shocked. And you're going to be just like Habakkuk saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you doing something about this? And God would answer back, Habakkuk or Jack or whoever you are. I am doing exactly what's needed. Trust me. But Habakkuk had a little bit of a learning curve here to pick up. And Habakkuk would have thought, well, maybe you're going to use Egypt. They're to the south. They're, they're not the biggest, strongest nation around. And they aren't the cruelest one around. Assyria maybe, but they're kind of fading out. But he tells them in verse 6, this unbelievable thing, he says, For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. You're what? I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. You, you have no concept of what that means. You can't even visualize some foreign country and raising up Russia, raising up China, raising up whatever, because you haven't really interacted with them. You haven't really watched personally what they're doing to people. And a lot of what's happening in their countries is suppressed. It doesn't get out. They hide it. You don't know what they're doing. Once in a while they escape, and then you don't know what's true and what isn't true. But he says, this is the case. I'm raising up. The Chaldeans. He puts that little word behold in there in verse 6. It, it can be translated low. It calls attention to something. It's a demonstrative particle. He says, take note of this. I am raising up. I am causing to be roused, stirred up, set up the Chaldeans. Now what you have to look back at is that the, the Babylonian Empire per se had been around for a thousand plus years. In different forms, at different times, they're, they're kind of rising up, they're going down, different groups. But the Chaldeans are a group of people in the southern part of the Mesopotamian Peninsula. You know, you know what Mesopotamia means? Meso is like mezzanine. It's the in-between. And Potamia means rivers. When you talk about a hippopotamus, you're talking about a horse river, river horse is what a hippopotamus is. So Potamia is between the rivers. It was a major area in the Fertile Crescent, but it's down on the south side where Ur is that Abraham came from. 
of the Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldees. So you kind of start fixing this in your mind, but um, Robin and I were talking about it this week and trying to make sense out of it. Who are these people? It is a section of the Babylonian Empire that starts to rise up and they take over the rest of the empire. They call it the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But it's still kind of the Babylonians, but these are bad, bad people. And what's amazing, it is where Abraham came from. Wednesday nights we've been studying Genesis, and you realize it's where Terah was from. And he worshipped many gods, as you're going to see on the study guide for Wednesday night if anybody shows up. But as we look at this picture here, we're realizing he's bringing in a group of people from this Babylonian territory that they had heard about. Ezekiel, a number of previous prophets. Ezekiel chapter 12. I told you guys you have to be over uh, enthusiastic today because you're missing all your friends. Don't fall asleep on me. Ezekiel 12, 13 says, I shall also spread my net over him. The context here of um, this prince that he's going to deal with. But he said, he will be caught in my snare and I shall bring him to Babylon in the land of the Chaldeans. So you can kind of see one example where he ties the two together so you don't have to take the preacher's word for it. But the Chaldeans were a kind of a breed a bad breed. Not that the Babylonians were good people, but they were extremely bad. And that's what he's telling him. He admits this travel group from southern Mesopotamia. I'm causing them to rise up. What's the problem? He says they're fierce. Look at verse 6 there. Bitter tempered, ruthless. They have a brutal disposition, is what that word tries to bring out. They're an impetuous people, impulsive, rash, hasty to act. And you take this back into the picture there. Remember the book of Daniel? Who was, who was still in charge during that time? What country is running the world during Daniel? The Babylonians. Who's the big king that gets mentioned? Nebuchadnezzar. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar in his life? He gets put out for seven years. Out in the... You guys are going to read Daniel again. Out in the wilderness, his son takes over for a while. He lets his dad come back in when it's over, which is amazing by itself. But what does he acknowledge in the book of Daniel, chapter 3 especially? The true God, the most high God, and he submits to him. He's a Chaldean. See, we get this idea in our heads, and, and we do it with our world around us. We look at our neighbors and our workmates and whoever it is we're coming across, or what we see on the news, and we say, they're unsavable. Really? Then how did God save Nebuchadnezzar? You're going to see him. And all of his lack of glory compared to Jesus Christ. But he became a believer. He submitted to the true God, the only God. When he was a, a, a leader of a, a polytheistic um, world around him. Many gods. Just like Terah and Abraham had come out of God reached down and saved him. You don't want to lock on that they're unsavable. That's not what he's saying. He's saying what the norm is for them is they're bitter-tempered, ruthless, brutal in their disposition. They're impulsive, rash, and hasty in their act. And they'll be sitting there kind of biding their time and also a bunch of soldiers sitting around saying, hey, let's, let's go slaughter all those children down there by the river. Okay, they get up, run down there with their swords, hack them all in pieces, go back over and sit in. That's rather impulsive, isn't it? Rather fierce. That's what it's talking about. They have no conscience about them. They don't care what anybody thinks. They're a God in and of themselves. Nice people. 
So you back up. Why is God using them as a spanking stick? What did Judah need? Serious spanking. And who was going to give it to him? The Chaldeans. And this is what he was after. So as we, we remember this process, remember how they, uh, kind of the impulsive idea, that what did they do with Daniel? Where did they throw him? Lions Den. That was kind of, yeah, we'll come up with a new idea. Let's feed him to the lions. And then how about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names? They got thrown in a fiery furnace. Now, is that kind of fierce and impetuous? It is. It's the world where they lived. They're struggling with this. And, and so as, as God shares this with Habakkuk, not yet with the people, he's going to write this in a prophecy that's going to be passed on. He tells us specifically here, they march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And I labeled this from the bombshell news about the raising of the Chaldeans to the fact that these people are just plain old bullies. They march throughout the earth. They're, they're a world power, is what he's trying to say with that. To seize dwelling places, to take by force, take possession of places and lands and, and things that are not theirs. They're going to come in and take your house. They're going to drive your car. They're going to get your bank account. They're just going to take it all. And what are you going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. Because it may take your life as well. But he says the things which are not theirs. They are these domineering bullies. And it comes out very clearly in the passage of what he's trying to zero in on. So then he moves to describe them even more. In case Habakkuk, you haven't got the message yet, which he has. Let me give you some specifics about them. How they're sovereign, they're speedy, they're successful, and they're scornful. Let's go into detail so you really understand what's going to happen. Wouldn't you love it if your father had done this with you before you got a spanking? Now let me explain to you what this is going to feel like. This Todd rod, or spanking stick, or whatever we might want to call it, it weighs 14 ounces. And when moved with the proper snap of the wrist upon the proper part of your body that God has designed to absorb that, it's going to hurt. Now, I'm going to only give you one swat because what your crime is not worthy of more than that. But you aren't going to be able to sit down for a few minutes and you're going to do a little dance. Should I go into great detail? Probably not. My wife's church is going... This is what he's doing. He's giving them details about these people, what it's going to be like when they come in. This is bad. And so in verse 8, or 7, sorry, he says, they are dreaded, as if Habakkuk didn't already know that. They excite terror in people when they hear that they're coming. They are also feared. They create an alarm. So here's the reaction side of it. Dreaded and feared. Then he says their justice and authority originate with themselves. Justice here is the, the right and wrong or the legality of what they do. Their standards for living are based on Chaldeans. That's it. We don't need anybody else telling us if it's okay or not. We don't need approval from an outside force. Now, I don't know what they did with their gods at this point. And maybe the Chaldeans were even less following anything um, than the Babylonians did. But he tries to tell them that their authority, their dignity, their eminence, their loftiness, their right to act. You know when a judge walks into a courtroom and everybody stands up? You ever talk back to a judge in a courtroom? Try it once. Typically nowadays they've learned they don't tolerate that for two seconds. 
they'll have you gagged, they'll have you removed, they'll, they'll find you in contempt, and all of a sudden you owe a bunch of money. They'll do a lot of things, but they, this is how, how they treat you. They show their authority, their dignity, their eminence, their loftiness by what? Their position? Where do they seat them? In, in the lowest part of the room? No, they put them in a raised-up platform. And some of those are bulletproof. You guys are still here? And so here he is, and he comes in. What's he wearing? A robe. Why why wear a robe? Aren't they hot? Aren't they uncomfortable? What's that robe represent? Dignity. This eminence, this this role that they're playing. And and so this authority here is the right to act. They, They go from the reaction of being dreaded and feared to the aspect that they're sovereign with their justice and authority. This word sovereign is often applied to God. They want to use it and say it's only... An attribute, they want to call it that, of God. It is not an attribute. When you look it up in the dictionary, even look it up in the Bible, when it's translated, and especially in the book of Daniel, where you'll find it in the New American Standard, it just means kingdom. It just means the one who has control at that point in time. So it's, it's a word you want to be careful with as far as how you apply it. One day his kingdom will come and God will reign over all. But right now he is given opportunity for people to defy him without any consequences directly. And so here the sovereignty is on them. They're the supreme kingdom. They're the supreme power. And it says specifically it originates within themselves. They're godless. They are a law to themselves is what he's trying to say. Try reasoning with them. They come up to to hurt you and you say, wait, 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 wait. I'm a good guy. I pay my taxes. I have food to share with you. You want some money? They try to send out a bribe. It doesn't matter. That, none of that stuff carries any weight whatsoever with them. They're God. And this is how you're going to respond to them. So this is their sovereign aspect that gets brought up. Not unlike China's communism today. Just to pick on one country. Many others are similar. Venezuela, Russia, wherever. You can go to many places today that are which? Iran, where it's just, they're sovereign. You will not do anything without their approval, and if you violate their, their rules, they will come down on you instantly, and they don't care if they kill you, maim you, whatever they may do to you. This is what communism is today. It's godless. The laws originate within themselves. They can do whatever they want. You're looking forward to God's spanking stick coming to the church in America? It's coming. The church is not taking God seriously. I don't need to pray. I don't need to always obey. I can kind of pick and choose what I feel like doing now and then. I don't have to acknowledge what, or, and follow what God has taught me in his word because he's a, he's a loving, heavenly father. He, he's easy gone. It's kind of like an old grandpa in a rocking chair. He just kind of looks at me and smiles. Is that how God is? you got the wrong picture of God. You do not understand him. Go check him out. Go read when you're reading through the Bible this year. Watch for who God is and how he treats people. That's not God. He's sovereign in every way, shape, and form when it comes to his rule over his people. Because when you receive Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God takes over in your heart. And you're now a subject of his. You have become a slave of Jesus Christ. And you will obey. He's not going to eliminate you or do something. You can't lose your salvation. But he will spank, just like a good parent, a loving parent will spank. And so he's trying to deal with this and explain to them the struggle they're having is, one, because um, God's bringing in this 
Chaldean people who are sovereign. Secondly, in verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Why is God, who's speaking to Habakkuk right here, why is he going into such detail? He's trying to explain to them that their horses are swift. They're light on their feet. They're, they're nimble. When they come in, you aren't going to be able to stop them. Just like some little village trying to stop tanks from rolling in. Isn't going to happen. They're also, their horses are keener than wolves. They're, the idea here is the idea of being sharp and smart. They know exactly what to do, how to respond in a given situation. When the, when the gunfire goes off, what does their horse do? Nothing. It's been trained to handle gunfire. It does not respond. It moves into the battle. Just like horses that have been trained to go into City Park in New York. You can try to do something against them, but they'll walk over you. They're not afraid of people. Even people with sticks in their hands. They will get aggressive. And this is what he's saying is what the Chaldeans are like. Daniel 7, 4, it's interesting, you use it in Daniel. The Babylonians there are seen as a lion having the wings of an eagle. So it's the same kind of picture. They're trying to describe what this enemy would have been like. Their horsemen come galloping. They spring about. They spread out. And their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle. The idea here is they're very difficult to avoid. You can't get away from them. And then it says they swoop down to devour. They ravagely consume their enemies. Happy words, huh? Just the book you wanted me to study on Mother's Day. This is the perfect Mother's Day message. Is your mom ever like this? <laughs> Some moms are really keen, really swift. They come galloping, don't talk back to them. The meanest mother in the world is usually the best mother in the world, as long as for just a season, an appropriate season to deal with whatever defiance you're trying to show. It's not going to get away with that. So here he goes from their sovereignty to their speediness. Verse 9, their success. You're not going to stop them. All of them come for violence. Remember that word back in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? This ruthless physical injury or harm. That's why they come. Their horde of faces moves forward. This is kind of this overwhelming trooper, this massive assembly moves forward like a desert wind is literally what that description is there. The word forward. It moves eastward and it's describing what the wind would do. And then it says they collect captives. They gather prisoners like sand. What's he trying to describe there? Countless. Remember who they took? Who they take into captivity? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego with their Babylonian names, and then a bunch of other young men that they had value. They didn't kill everybody. They recognized the usefulness of some of these guys. They took captives home and captives home and captives. They put them to work. They used their expertise. They put them in subjection into slavery. But this is what they do, and it's very well marked. And so as he's describing their success, he goes into their scorn. Verse 10, they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. This, this idea of mockery here is they scoff. They deride kings. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of army you have. They are looking down on you and they think it's a joke. Just give us a couple minutes 
and your troops will flee, and we will devastate you and annihilate you. This is who God's bringing in. So Habakkuk's basically being told, don't think you can get away with it. Just like your keen mother or your smart mother who knows exactly what to do, she just took a couple seconds to go get the paddle, and now she's looking for you. And you think you can run away? You know if you run away, what's going to happen? Just wait till dad gets home. Is that worse or better? Worse. So you better face mom, and you better accept it. And I could go into a lot of stories about that with my mom. I won't. I'd be sharing trade secrets from the family. But in verse 10 here, that not only do they mock, which is more of a verbal idea, they have this secondary part where the rulers are a laughing matter to them, kind of this mental attitude, an object of derision, of scorn, of ridicule. That's what they think of everybody around them. And you watch them in battle. You historically follow what they did to the Assyrians, to the Egyptians, to Judah, ultimately. He says they laugh. So using the same word there, this laughing matter. They ridicule at every fortress, every stronghold, every fortification that's been raised up. It's a joke to them because what they do, he says, is they heap up rubble to capture it. They build these siege ramps out of dirt. They had plenty of slaves. Remember what they're doing? They're capturing, capturing. Now we'll put their slaves to work. They're building a siege mount up to the top of the thing, and they go right into the castle or fort or city or whatever it may be, and they annihilate them. You made us work this hard. Now we're coming in mad, really mad. We had to sit in your lousy desert under your scorching heat and work for days, sometimes weeks, to come in and conquer your city. You're all going to die. But their goal is to capture it. They overtake their defenders. What I kind of picture with verse 10 is this gold fever. You ever have that as a kid? You ever, you ever get the idea that uh, you could make riches doing things? We used to go up to the Mariposa, to the, um, uh, we had friends there at Angel's Camp, a family that would go stay at, and he had three gold mines that were back in, and they were closed out. We weren't supposed to go in there. But my um, friend across the street, it was his uncle, and when nobody was looking, we'd sneak in. They were very dangerous. They could have collapsed. A lot of times water would come in and flood them and whatever. But, but you, got, you got this gold fever and you started digging. Well, I went back home. I bought a $35 metal detector. That, that's top of the class, right? No. It was the cheapest thing you would probably find on the market. And I went out in the backyard and I had gold fever. I had this, this thing about I was going to take whatever I want and capture the riches that were in the yard. And I went around digging. And when I didn't realize, the way I dug is I chopped all the roots. And so I made holes about about the same size as a shovel kind of going around, pop them out and realize the penny or the nickel, which was always there, was right on the surface. But then I'd pop them back in, and about a, a few days later, my dad called me up and he called me in the backyard, and he goes, what's that? And look out there, it looked like a minefield, kind of like dead pockets of grass over the whole lawn. And it, but it was a phase I went through, and I was into collecting coins, and I finally traded that in for Jesus. But, but as we looked at this idea, this is what they're doing. They can't wait to get to the next city, the next pocket of gold, the next treasury of slaves and captives that they can take advantage of, the next thing they can put on their wall and say, we own Judah, we own Egypt, we own the world. This is what they're after. It's kind of what gold fever's like, in case you never had it. You guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. You've had it. It may not have been that. Now what do we pursue? What are people going after? The next best cell phone? Life on Facebook? 
What kind of pleasures? Give me some specifics. Okay, the lottery, drinking. Health, I'm going to do whatever. Okay, house. And those aren't bad things. Don't get me wrong, I'm not putting them down. But when they run your life, when they're the focus of your life, when it's what you find yourself dreaming about, when it's what you can't wait to share when somebody comes over to visit, is to show them around, why don't you show them Jesus? We had a guy lay carpet this week. I don't know if he happened to be watching. But uh, I didn't put pressure on. He, he, wasn't, he didn't seem really interested in spiritual things. But at the end, I made a really clear statement, more so, that Jesus Christ is the focus. He shared a lot about his life. Very personable. Neat guy. I'd love to have him back. But we, we had to do one room to fix up things from in-laws and all the other stuff that we were working on. And so we're, we're bringing him in. And as I got him out the front porch, I made it clear to him, there's only one thing that really has any value in the world. Carpet's going to come and go. All this gonna, It's Jesus Christ. And I didn't get any response. It wasn't like, you're right. Or, hey, I never thought about that. It was just kind of like, eh, and then went on talking. But you, you have to keep reminding people and reminding yourself, this isn't, isn't what it's about. My mom put carpet in one time in our house, and we weren't allowed in there for a month. I'm going, well, what good is the carpet? No. Until my dad finally snuck in there with a TV tray and dinner one night watching TV. Back in the 60s. And then it was like, oh, okay, the ice is broken. Then the next thing you know, everybody's spilling everything out there all over that carpet. But, but it's what a living room or a family room is for. And so here they are. They're, they're saying, well, I can waste it because I didn't earn it. And I can just ransack the next city and get some more. So it becomes flippant. It becomes un, un, um, appreciated in so many respects. And so he gets into this part and he tries to make clear to them, I have prepared the Chaldeans. And they're very powerful. You're not going to get out of this. Habakkuk. Judah is not going to escape my spanking. I'm not destroying the nation of believers. But if I kill off unbelievers, they will be separated from me forever and ever. That's where the real crux comes down to. But it's the believers in Judah that I'm trying to get their attention. They've drifted from me. Like the church in America has drifted. I've told you many times, I have no idea what the numbers are. But they'll tell you it's like 80% claim to be Christians in America. That can't be true anymore. We've had too many outside groups, too many atheists, too many Satanists, too many uh, Muslims, too many other groups coming in. It's got to be dropping down. But if you put pressure on those people, what you find out is what I always state, my guess, Ebner guess, which is not God, is that there's probably more like 3 to 5% of true believers in America. And when they're tested, what will happen to some of them? Just like Peter, they're going to run out of fear. You see fear with COVID-19, 99.9% survive. All you're doing is putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. I'll catch it later. Well, let's just get it over with. Unless you're vulnerable, unless you're an older person, and, and you have that. It's how we used to grow up. Remember when, when somebody got the, the mumps? They all, we all got put, or the chicken pox, or whatever. Put them in the room. Get the chicken pox. Get over with. And the witch? Okay. Yeah. Uh, tonsils, whether you had tonsils or not, we're going to get them out. Then you get to eat ice cream. Whatever, whatever it was, it was kind of a group effort back then. Nowadays, we're trying to hide from it, and I'm not sure why. A lot of it's fear. And again, there's some people who cannot handle that. I totally understand. But they can't handle the common cold. They can't handle the flu. They can't handle a lot of things. Protect them. Help them to be safe. 
But for the rest of us, we've got to stop focusing on the temporal and the world and the things that man can produce or that sin brought into the world. We've got to focus on Jesus Christ. He will take care of you. Be anxious for nothing. But he's going to punish, he says in verse 11, ultimately the Chaldeans. You think that's the right thing to do? Do some of you wish that God had punished your mother for spanking you? No. Mom was just. Mom did it out of love. Mom was consistent. Dad may not have been, but he meant well. And he straightened out by the time he hit 60, 70. He started mellowing, is what we called it with my dad. I think they're telling me I'm mellowing now, too. I am a little bit, slowly. But here he tells you in verse 11, Then they will sweep through like a wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. This is kind of the, the sacrilege of what they've done. It's going to be paid back. This punishment will come. And he points out two critical things to understand. The little word then at the beginning of verse 11 brings out the idea that it is at that time. It's strictly temporal. This spanking will not last forever. He's placing the emphasis on the duration with this little Hebrew word that's translated then. But it also gives it emphasis. Then they will sweep through. He's talking about the idea of pass on quickly. They're going to pass away. They're going to vanish. How long did it take? Again, if you know some of the history with Israel, 605-ish, they all debate. 598, 586. 586 is when Nebuchadnezzar finally came in and or took everything. They, they carried off everything from the temple. They took all the gold. They destroyed everything. They took the largest number of captives, the third deportation, they call them. That's the Chaldeans, Babylonians, carrying out this judgment on Judah. And then how long did it last? What was Jeremiah's prophecy? Seventy years. Daniel 9 brought it up. Seventy years. So guess what happened in 536-ish? Who came in? That very night, right at 70 years, who came in? The Medes and the Persians. Remember chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall? Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, didn't learn from his father. Who knows what contact they even had? How he even trained him? I mean, my dad was nuts. He was out in the woods for seven years and looked like an animal. So what do you expect me to learn from him? But he's in there having this drunken orgy, drinking out of the cups that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem to the other gods they were celebrating. And the handwriting comes in. Many, many tackle parasite. Judged, judged, numbered. There's different words there. I haven't looked at that for a while. But he basically lays it out. Daniel explains to him. He gives him this robe and whatever, but it wasn't the end of it. That very night, Darius the Mede comes in under the water that flowed right through the city of Babylon. They blocked the river. They diverted it. They came in. They took the city almost without a fight. One night, the great Babylonian empire was done. Does God know what he's doing? He uses a term here. He says it's temporary. He said it will pass on quickly. It'll pass away. Well, 70 years doesn't seem very quick. I've got a couple more, and it seems like it went by really fast. And as he's looking here, 
He says it will be like a wind, just like this desert wind that he talked about in verse 9. Scorching, withering, but transient. And he brings out the last part of it. He says it will pass on. It will cease to exist. How is Babylon doing today? What country is it? Iraq. How are they doing? They tried to rise up for a little while there. They made one of our presidents mad. They did some things. We don't know what the truth is, what really happened anywhere. You never do. Your government is always hiding things from you, but that's life, so relax. Just focus on what God wants you to do and let him take care of all that stuff. But as he's dealing with that issue there, <coughs> excuse me, God's trying to get our attention and help us to realize that Babylon, modern-day Iraq, even modern-day Iran, if they really wanted to have a world war, how well would Iran hold up? They wouldn't. They can rattle their sabers. They can act like they're this powerful, you know, we're bigger than you, better than you. They're nothing. And you look back historically, who was Iran? The Medes and the Persians. Iraq was the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. The Greeks, how are they doing today? How's the Roman Empire that's now melted into iron and clay? It's mixed in with the toes. It's scattered around the world. It's not an empire anymore. This is what he's trying to bring out here. We panic in the moment instead of looking at the big picture that God creates. That's why we're not to be anxious for anything. God has not forgotten us. Now, if, you, if you're in sin, what should you be expecting if you're a believer? A spanking. You can't run and hide from God. He will get your attention, and he'll make it appropriate to get us back in line with where we're supposed to be. Don't play around with sin in your life. Don't pretend like nobody sees what you're doing. God does. And he loves you too much. If you're a believer, to deal with that. If you're not a believer, it's just adding to your um, demise when all of it comes down. But it's temporary, and then he says in verse 11, it's going to be terminated. He said, but they will be held guilty. The little word but there is kind of like, don't worry. Don't misunderstand. They're going to be held guilty. They're going to bear their appropriate punishment. When I'm done with the spanking stick, I will take care of it. They deserve judgment. And they're going to get it. But they're not my people. They're not my children. They're not going to spend eternity with me. I'm giving them as much time to repent, just like Nebuchadnezzar, who finally did respond. It's not that some Chaldeans didn't come to Christ, or to God, generally, in the Old Testament. But he says they're going to be held guilty. Their strength, the focus of their human power, they whose strength is their God. They worship their own physical abilities, their own muscles, their own weapons, their own ability with their reflexes and training, their own martial arts. You've seen movies where they try to make a joke out of it. Here's this guy comes in, flailing his arms, knows all these martial arts, and comes right up to the guy and going to hurt him really bad, and the guy pulls out a gun and shoots him. Right? Maybe you don't watch those movies. I'm not recommending them. But, but the, the picture here is what they were claiming is ridiculous. Remember Psalm 2? You have that one memorized? Psalm chapter 2. Great psalm. I go back to it regularly these days. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 2, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Yahweh, and against his anointed, Adonai, Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, is what they try to say. 
open rebellion against God. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thy inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. That's what Jesus Christ is going to receive one day soon. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, hello, Chaldeans, in this case, show discernment. Chinese, Russians, Iranians, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and worship and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Kiss the Son is literally what it says there. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Have you done that? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as he's come to die on the cross and to take our place? Do you know him? And so you have no anxiety about the future. You have no anxiety about what may or may not be coming in your life. You can cry out to him. You can watch him work. You can watch him answer prayer requests sometimes that are absolutely amazing in the way he specifically deals with something right away. And then other times you can be like Habakkuk and say, Lord, hello, been praying for a few days, been praying for a few weeks, been praying for a few years. You know how many people come up to me and say, Jack, have you asked God to heal you? Oh yeah, many times. What'd he say? Well, I'm still sick, so he must have said no. Christ didn't come so that I wouldn't have disease. Christ didn't come so that I wouldn't die someday. Those are consequences I have because of my sin. Christ came to give me eternal life spiritually. He justified me. He sanctified me. He will glorify me because of what he has done. And I simply said, yes, and received that free gift of eternal life. So the question is, do you know him? That's what's going to fix everything around you. It may not take away COVID. It may decide how you get it, how bad you get it, whatever may happen to you. But God is in control, and I rejoice in that, and I trust him, and I look to him. But I start with my salvation, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. That's where you need to be. And if you're there, you're protected. The only thing you got to watch out for, if you try to get a little bit saucy, a little bit smartatically, a little bit defiant, he's going to come down, wham! He will get your attention. He will keep you in line. He will help you to grow up. He's not going to ignore sin in our lives. You've been there, haven't you? If you haven't, there's a question of whether or not you're saved. Read Hebrews 12 and find out who God disciplines. Only his own. So we're excited about walking with Christ, right? We're excited about God's judgment that's coming on the world. Not because they didn't have a chance to believe. Not because we hate them and we're not long-suffering with God himself. Not willing that any should perish. But we're excited because when that judgment comes, Christ is going to set up his throne, Psalm 2, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Go tell people what's coming. Go warn them that they need a Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this little book of Habakkuk. Thank you for your honesty to that man. Even though he was a prophet of yours, he had a lot to learn like we do. 
May we press on in this world. May we not be focused on our own protection, our own food, our own future. May we be more focused on our neighbors best. Their future. Their need of your son. Father, use us to make a difference in this world, knowing that it's temporary and that you're coming back very soon. May we joyfully serve you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we uh, close singing the chorus of How Great Thou Art? We'll be in the key of